Dear guests, this is my conversation with Dr. David Boswell, a director of the Graduate School of North American Studies in Berlin and a specialist in Canadian politics, both foreign and domestic. He is a true friend of this podcast and also an academic supervisor to me and Vala. Throughout 2022, we tried to enrich collectively our understanding of such complex issues as the war in Ukraine and the enlargement of NATO through conversation and dialogue, offline and online. So in today's conversation, we talk once again about geopolitics of NATO, Russian invasion of Ukraine, Western media cycle, and how people in Kremlin made the decision to go all in. If you like our podcast, please subscribe, and as always, enjoy. What did you learn from 2022? <laughs> <laughs> that was so general that I could come up with anything, right? For instance, yes. that <clears throat> I shouldn't drink more coffee than I actually do. But I think that was not what you were hinting at. I guess you were talking about the political aspects. And I, I think that even now, 10 months into the Ukraine war, um, I am not really... More knowledgeable is the wrong way to put it. But I mean, there are still many open questions for me. So, I mean, uh, there are some things we addressed in earlier episodes or in earlier conversations, but um, if you would like my opinion sort of on global politics in general, I, I still think there are many sort of known unknowns, if I may okay. well, quote so, Donald Rumsfeld. Okay, so what are those uh, questions? Well, maybe maybe we can try to disentangle them in well, today's we conversation. Them, but I think, <laughs> um, we often had conversations about um, is that the end or when did the so-called unipolar moment end? Um, are we seeing the emergence of a new multipolar system? And I think as such, uh, this multipolar system is emerging or has been with us for the last, I don't know, five to ten years. And um, American power as such is waning to a certain degree, but uh, not as some of the critics may may want to see that. <clears throat> but um, if we look at the, uh, for instance, now change in Beijing um, with a complete reversal of their COVID policy, um, I still think that this image that was somehow or sometimes presented in, in Western media that autocratic regimes have certain benefits when it comes to, I don't know, pursuing a kind of policy because they don't have to get back to their citizens and there is no democratic control, they can react faster, that this would be sort of a competitive advantage. I think that's also not necessarily the case. So, I mean, as such... Um, even if COVID doesn't sound very much like a topic, especially not the domestic kind of regulation or policy on that, uh, like where you might look for, hey, where is the link to global politics? Um, I still think that um, this, say, competition of different political systems, of different economic systems, uh, is still something that will shape the um, international uh, scene in the coming years. But... For instance, when we look at important countries like um, India, they still have this, say, equidistance to both the United States and to China and or Russia. So I, I, still, I still think there are many signs that we will see some kind of new emerging multipolar system. Um, uh, we will also see, I think, the continuation of countries like like Turkey, that is, well, not the typical NATO member state, I would say. But at the same time, now you see that 
Erdogan looking f to get reelected next year also, I mean, does take some decisions that, I mean, might backfire in the end. I don't know whether you followed the news about the um, trying to get the Istanbul mayor uh, into prison. I mean, that's certainly politically motivated. I mean, the the kind of judicial system there is certainly not uh, one that works according to the rule of law. So, I mean, I'm not really sure whether sometimes these things that, uh, it depends how you look at it, but sometimes they're presented as as being a sign of strength or a sign of weakness. Um, I haven't fully made up my mind what I should think. In that case, I would rather go for sign of weakness. And therefore, um, yeah, well, it will be certainly to... Uh, remain a very turbulent era that we are seeing. I guess it's it's also good to to be a little bit uncertain because I guess in in social sciences there is a trend that you have to be certain about something. Like you have to be certain why why did Russia like why Russia like you need to you need to be really certain why Russia invaded Ukraine or what really caused this conflict. But I think if you if you are uncertain or in a sense you're searching for answers, it, it gives you way much more it gives you just agility to read different sources, to just try to understand the conflict deeply and from different and multiple perspectives. So I think it's maybe a good thing. And that's maybe that's, um, you, you, I guess you will try to find answers to those questions in 2023, right? And <laughs> um, 24, I guess. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think that will, I think that will naturally um, continue. I, I just have the impression, and that's not something that I... Not, not what I will say will not be terribly surprising is that um, if you consume um, newspapers which are now primarily done online or you, I mean, are looking into news feeds of your social media channels that um, I can, it can also distract you in a way because you may actually not be able to see the broader picture. And I think um, there is uh, this this entire mechanism about being bombarded with what is at times not really, you know, relevant information in the sense that it is not really changing the overall situation. Um, I think that's something that that may distract some observers. And I mean, of course, I'm affected by that as well. But I think um, if you if you were to re-read some of the newspapers or newspaper articles with coverage on the Ukraine-Russian Ukraine war um, of March or April 2022, I, I think you would say, oh my gosh, I mean, this is like not very, say, profound, the analysis. For me, it's actually like a personal issue because I there is so few resources that present information on Ukraine-Russian war neutral. Like what, what I mean by neutral is just like they just present facts. Like this happened, this statement was made. Um, you know, Russians did this and that, uh, or like Americans did this and that in relation to the conflict. And there are like actually very few sources that, like very few media outlets that, that are doing this. I found Al Jazeera is pretty good. Like in a way, they just because they they're not, they're not with Russians or they're not with Americans either, so they just try to present the whole picture as as neutral as they as they can. Of course, they uh, I guess sympathetic to maybe Western side in the sense that, I mean, it's also hard to be <laughs> pro-Russian if you're not Russian in a sense. But uh, I find it's uh, one of the few, I mean, I, it took me a while actually to get there because whatever like you, you have in the Western media, it's very biased. It's like in every article you, you would find such a strong language condemning Russia, even in every, like, and there is like, you, you could see the whole objectivity is lost because I just want to know facts. I just want to know who did what, like uh, like who uh, launched this attack or what type of statements uh, did Putin make. Like in the sense of like in, in in his own words. Like I don't want I don't want like those heavily biased language to affect my own thinking, so to speak. And it took me a while. I mean, I actually uh, it took me a long time during this conflict to find a source that I could, like in the sense I could read from time to time just to get basic facts, like what's really going on. I mean, uh, even... I still think that's tricky because I mean, um, of yeah, course, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't rule it out that it's possible more or less, but I think um, at times you have an overlap of something like 
media coverage, I don't know, satellite imagery, and then at the same time some kind of interpretation. And I mean, if you are not able to separate the kind of interpretation or at times wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, now what, what I found interesting, I, I just read the latest episode or, or the latest um, issue of The Economist, which is on the Winter War, and they talk to Zelensky and they talk to um, the military brass of, of Ukraine. And I mean, what I found interesting is that um, they were basically saying um, the military brass in, in, in Ukraine. I mean, that one should never underestimate um, Russian manpower, what uh, they have in terms of military equipment. And at times, if you read Western media reports something like two months ago, um, after after the 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 Kharkiv offensive or in 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 that oblast, and then after 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 Cherson, they basically said, well, I mean, it's just a matter of months, maybe, and uh, before Ukraine will be fully liberated. And I think that's that's kind of the wishful thinking. I, I guess you know if you if you listen to the military observers, I I always think it's it's better than you know looking at the erratic Twitter feed of, uh, you know, of, of a person who used to be in the military and somehow thinks that he's an expert by... Yeah, yeah. But what I... Yeah, but what I really mean is sources like BBC or Reuters, they they became heavily biased, like in the sense like... But the question I mean, is, do you think it's on purpose or do you think it's it's by accident? Because, I mean, at times if you if you if you look at where they get their information from... So I mean, of course, now the problem. Now the problem is you would need. I mean, you get all sorts of Ukrainian drone footage, maybe that is being then you know made available to media outlets like the BBC. At the same time, you have very regulated access, I guess, by by the Russian side. Also, I read that the BBC is no longer able to report as freely um, from within Russia as in earlier months so of course there might also be an explanation why it doesn't work but i mean as such a, I, as such a, i agree with you that i mean you you either seem to get the full kremlin propaganda or you or you seem to be get some kind of at least say distorted uh coverage and that is dependent because i i think that's one of the lessons you could learn even from the iraq war back then when they started with that concept of embedded journalism not that Journalists are per se embedded with Ukrainian soldiers, but I mean this kind of sometimes they come to the front line and sometimes they are, you know, being um, shipped to, or I mean, they get access to the front by by uh, certain people in the Ukrainian army. Of course, that will also shape their their perception, what they write on the conflict. And I mean that's not necessarily wrong per se. I, I just think that. Um, since there are multiple fronts in this conflict, um, and and a broader strategic point, I think I think you, if you just you know are forty eight hours in Bakhmut and do the coverage on on the kind of standoff between the Ukrainian and Russian forces there, the question is: Is it really something um, profound that you can write on this conflict as such? I, I think I would disagree in a sense because when you open like BBC, you are supposed to find just facts. This is what journalism is all about. It's about factual information. In other words, like Russia attacked this Ukrainian city. Um, like the US issued or gave Ukrainian, like, Ukraine like this amount of missiles yesterday. Or something like this. Just just basic facts. But when once they're reporting, I mean from, from uh, studios and stuff, they intentionally... Uh, put such a heavy language in their reporting, like, you know, soon to, like, as, as you said, soon to lose Russia, Ukraine must win. Or in other words, they presented not as a factual information, but more as a specific media narrative. And then, of course, I, because I, I feel like just desperate because I just want facts for just my own personal consumption. Because, like, for example, before that, I, I enjoyed reading Reuters because I think Reuters is more or less neutral especially before the war i mean it was just factual information this happened today but but in relation to the conflict in ukraine it's heavily biased as well as cnn as well as like bbc and other sources like in a sense uh, for me it's just a little bit of personal 
tragedy because I trusted those sources before, but I, I, I couldn't trust them anymore because I know, I mean, and of course, like most of this information is still factual, but it's being specific, like intentionally actually presented under certain like narrative. Um, but I just still want, I just still want facts. But don't you think, don't you think that's <laughs> sort of a, a typical development that happens in, in any conflict that the longer a conflict drags on between two sides, that there are some kind of narratives that emerge over time. And, you know, it's, it's also yeah. different to change course in that sense, because I mean, of course, one important element of the media coverage in Western media, and I'm not saying this is sort of manipulated by, by the governments or anything like that, yeah. but I mean, just something uh, where I think there, there is, there is something like a, not a sub-argument, but some kind of sub-line to that is, of course, that um, the media coverage also um, is not necessarily supposed to, but certainly should not undermine Western support, broader societal support for uh, for the Ukrainian side. So, of course, I think yeah. you have to you have to see the broader picture and say um, the sanctions, as such, yes, they have harmed Russia, but they also have harmed you know. Uh, the average household, because now you pay more for your electricity bills, you pay more for your heating, um, and as such, if you think, because um, either we don't want to see tanks rolling through also, that's sort of the, 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 the image that was sometimes presented, or we don't want to, you know, have a country being rewarded for its um, aggressive operation, things like that, you can pick one of those arguments, um, I think that's also something that started sometime in April, May. So, I mean, that also the support of Ukraine would be linked to the preservation of our kind of way of life or, or our yeah. democratic system, etc. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the more you continue like that, the more it takes on a life of its own. And therefore, it's also difficult to counter that. And I think um, that the next month will really be crucial because, I mean, if the Ukrainians say the worst thing that they are expecting is a Russian offensive in January and sort of the best they can hope for is the Russian offensive in March, but that the Russian offensive will happen or now also the Moldovan side saying that they are expecting some kind of military operation starting in Transnistria. I think... Um, the Western countries or NATO countries will have to brace that. I mean, because they will see um, that uh, this is, I mean, not necessarily just the beginning, but this is really a very critical um, time where this entire talk about, you know, Russia is, I mean, Russian forces are collapsing and, I mean, there will be some kind of upheaval in the Kremlin and Putin will be ousted or the entire Russian state will collapse. <clears throat> I mean, this may all happen, but I mean, again, I think it might just be wishful thinking. And if it, it's always dangerous if you underestimate your sort of opponent. And in that sense, at least the political opponent is the current Russian regime or how Russian conducts its foreign policy. And therefore, you have to come up with a you know smart way to address that. And I mean, to reduce your own risk, to reduce the risks of, um, for the Ukrainian side... And then somehow find a way how to how to counter that. I mean, beyond just chipping weapons and um, otherwise thinking that Ukrainians will retake all of the lost lands in the coming twelve months, which I think is too optimistic. Yeah, but it's, at times it's it's being presented like that. So I think um, you need to have different scenarios. And apparently, behind closed doors, Ukrainians also. Uh, see that official Ukrainians, I mean. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, there's one thing where you say, oh, they should just get, I mean, uh, should just accept that they lost the land. It's kind of the, the what, what many German intellectuals, you know, cited in open letters. I mean, that's also at least problematic to say the least. But I mean, the, the, the sort of other extreme to say, hey, we just, I mean, otherwise do whatever it takes to paraphrase uh, Draghi, by putting all our military weight into the conflict. I mean, it's the question is, if you do that, you need to have some kind of idea of what you want to achieve. And I mean, if you have that, and if that also is in line with what uh, the Ukrainians want or the Ukrainian government wants, 
okay, that you could consider that. But I think as such, you really have this fog of war thing where, yeah, yeah. where you have but, strange yeah, yeah. narratives of the war and, and, the, and the coverage that is not really transparent or not... Um, um, ambiguity, so yes, to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's especially specific created on both Russian and Ukrainian and American ends because whenever you go to Russian, Ukrainian or... American officials, they're very ambiguous in terms of like what is the end goal of this conflict, but you could see they all, in a sense, embrace the longer conflict. I mean, Russians definitely understand that the conflict will, will, like, will last for a while, maybe for 10 years, maybe for five years, who knows. But I think they're up for, for, for I mean, they're up for a bigger conflict, just in case, but they're also up for a longer projected conflict with Ukraine. Then, of course, Ukraine must also understand that um, they probably will face Russian aggression for a while. And in a sense, Americans also prepare for a longer conflict. And like, once you start thinking about, but what's the really end goal? Like, what, what, what are they fighting for? And to me, it was really surprising. The more you come back to this idea of Ukraine in NATO, which is if you answer positively that Ukraine becomes NATO, you end up in one world scenario like when NATO wins, or like in, the, in a sense, Americans win in this conflict, and Ukraine becomes part of NATO, uh, probably maybe with the help of Russian um, collapse of, of, of Russian government or something like this, maybe maybe something else happens. Like, who knows? <laughs> But this gives you one picture. Um, or, or we end up in a situation where Ukraine um, doesn't become part of NATO, And this is, of course, the picture is, uh, like, in a sense, what Russia is fighting for. But, of course, like, now it's really even hard to find those clear statements. But I think, like, the whole concept is just, in a sense, the whole concept of, like, Ukraine being either part of NATO or not is there. Like, in a sense, it gives you at least, if you can, if you can try to understand this conflict... If you guys can, if you want to understand the future of this conflict, you, you you should think about those terms, or you should think about those concepts, because whatever resolution they have eventually, Ukraine and and Russia, part of uh, membership in NATO would be there. But it's also interesting in the sense that um, for Russia, Russia like in a sense, Russia must ensure ensure that Ukraine won't become part of NATO. And I think this is a tricky question because you could imagine type of scenario where Ukraine, where Ukrainian authorities say, "Hey, take those lands, but let us be part of NATO and European Union." And I think Russians would say, "No, I mean, we will continue this conflict forever. If it takes, if it get, if we, if we need to continue this conflict until uh, I don't know, complete collapse of Ukrainian state, I guess we would do this." And I guess this is something that, of course. Uh, it's very destructive Russian behavior, but it's destructive for a certain specific reason. But I also wanted to elaborate what you said about uh, the Russian demise, or in the sense that you said that Russia is not like that powerful, or the, the narrative that is circulating in Western media. And of course, I think I thought about it quite a lot, and um, they try to portray Russia as a weak state for a while, and they're still in the business of doing this. They're saying, you know. Russia has a uh, economy size of Italy. It's not very great power. And whatever documents you have now from American side, in all documents they're saying like you know, the big threat is like China, but Russia is like you know, it's it's a, it's a destructive power. They're calling it, I guess now officially in in strategic documents or so something like this. So in other words, they want to kind of like specifically like in the sense almost like a human perspective offend russia and this is i thought about it but this is like one one of the reasons russians started the whole thing because they want to show the world that like russia still matters i mean at least from putin perspective definitely russia is still can can do a lot you just like you shouldn't underestimate some russia. people might say it's close to suicidal approach but i mean um i but that there is a I mean, I think we can agree that there is a strong psychological element to that and one of humiliation or feeling of humiliation or a feeling of superiority on one side and, and that of and, and that on the other. But I think um I I think what you raised in terms of aspects that there is something like an 
unintended escalation of the conflict because eventually it could boil down to the question, does uh, Ukraine in whatever kind of territorial shape, because there might be some kind of um, parts that wouldn't continue to remain in Ukraine yeah. if it becomes a part of NATO, that as, as such, I, I think that's a very, say, German perspective or Euro Eurocentric perspective, because I think for the American side, we are now seeing a kind of hodgepodge of different narratives that are linked to the Ukraine war. And one is all, always something that you find in American media, but you, that, that you find not that often in European media, and that is that this entire support of Ukraine and the, the kind of um, conflict between different systems, between Russia and NATO countries, is also one that um, signals or is supposed to signal something to the Chinese side and is also um, something that is sort of being interwoven with the Taiwan question. So I mean, um, there is there is so I, in in that sense, the entire repercussions of the conflict or what um, other countries should learn from from you know this this narrative of the West is united, NATO is united. We're doing everything we can to support Ukraine. We're everything to uphold international um, law. Um, the rule of law, etc. Um, I think all of that is is also supposed to be communicated to a broader global audience, at least from an American perspective. And I think um, in in Europe, especially in Germany, the discussion seems to be very much more geographically limited to the European landmass or to Europe as such. And I think this, I mean, there is not that one perspective is right and the other one is wrong. It's just if you do have this more global outlook, I think there are way more um, aspects you have to bear in mind. <clears throat> I mean, that's yeah. what, what I mean from, from the side of Washington. But there is also, I think, <clears throat> um, a different kind of thinking of different options. And, and I think I could imagine that in, in the United States or in, in Washington, um, policymakers are perhaps thinking that Ukraine could become a member of NATO, but I mean that whereas Western Germany used to be kind of the front state um, of the Iron Curtain, then that this would then be, uh, Ukraine would become the kind of a front state to, I don't know, whatever kind of Shanghai Cooperation Organization alliance emerges, or I mean, now we just saw... Putin and, and Lukashenko um, basically reaffirming their, their commitment to a kind of joint um, defensive posture. So I, th I think as such, you're seeing the hardening of the positions. And mm -hmm. it, it's something that we discussed in um, an earlier yeah. uh, talk or discussion we had, whether there is something like a new, say, Cold War, where we really have very clear and rather not very porous um, frontiers or borders such as in the, in the Cold War, or whether we see um, some other outcome. And I, I, I don't see the other outcome as um, very plausible at the moment. That's, uh, the, the, I guess, what we try to understand collectively. And um, But I, I don't really like, I mean, for me, it's like a red flag, like new Cold War, because it's a very lazy historical analysis. Because Cold War was a very, like, of course, it was a bipolar world, if you think about this uh, grand geopolitical terms. But it was also, like, like both USSR and the US, they wanted to preserve, there was a status quo after the World War II. And this status quo was very stable, especially on the European continent. Of course, you can also think that European continent is the source of all world wars. Um, and like the, the rules of the game were pretty clear, and no one wanted to, to get uh, into the territory of another power. I mean, there was a, certainly a like status quo. There was an order, or there was an agreement. But now there is really no order. Like In a way, like a lot of like analysts use this term disorder, like something like even Titan Vendor, something is something is changing. 
And that's why I guess, of course, it makes it way much more dangerous. And of course you don't, yeah, I, I would say like dangerous and... And the world is still globalized. Like in a sense, it's not really divided because people in Moscow still, and people in, I would also assume in Shanghai, they still live in this type of consumer society. Nothing, there is no other ideology, so to speak. Um, yeah, there's only one ideology, this ideology of consumerism. I mean, one can argue about different type of political systems, but they're all like, you know, they still resemble one another and of course it makes it very interesting and in a sense that's why i don't really think it's a cold war there is no really ideological basis and secondary well, is I also agree. i agree that there's yeah. no i mean what i yeah. meant with my reference to cold war is it's like less an ideological one but one where you have you know, clearly demarcated borders where you have i don't know 1000 tanks on one side and on the other so i mean you basically have a uh, have a, a stalemate yeah. that doesn't make it I mean, that that doesn't give any incentive to try to change the territorial yeah. status quo. And I mean, it, it it's something like like a deep freeze, or it's 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 a bit something like the Russian occupations or what they called peace forces in some of the former USSR territories, like you know Transnistria, Abkhazia, uh, those places where where you or some parts in Central Asia, um, or uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, where they also yeah. technically froze the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And so, I mean, it could be something like that. Of course, that's not a permanent solution, but I mean, the question is, um, otherwise, will we see a, a continuation yeah. of the war? I don't know. Again, there is something else where you have this this analogy. There are two two comments I would like to make. One is this idea whether we now live in a Seitenwende world or in, in a more tur turbulent era. I think it's Something that many people who have um, lived through the Balkan Wars find terribly disturbing. Um, because, I mean, it, it, it continues that narrative that, oh, between 1990 and 2022, or maybe 2014, before Crimea was invaded, we lived in this terribly peaceful world. And then people forget the Iraq War, people forget um, the Yemen War, people forget Afghanistan. People forget, yeah. not least the Balkan Wars. I mean, that's also why I think it was a slap in the face for the people to say, oh, that's the first large, um, you know, conflict or war in, in Europe since the Second World War, which is simply not correct. So I, I think there is this, this kind of glossing over of historical events or trying to characterize a, a period, the last 30 years, that actually was not as it is now sort of being portrayed. And the second thing to the... Um, Cold War aspect, I think also there, this, this seeming stability also wasn't really there. Um, if you look at the kind of policy that Tito um, and, and, and the Yugoslavs or Yugoslavia had, because, I mean, as such, this was, I mean, Tito was smart in that sense in doing that balancing, but as such, this was clearly uh, the entire non-aligned movements, decolonization, etc. They they also brought some kind of momentum, and you yeah. you could you could see the proxy wars then developing. So I mean, in, in in that sense, what was frozen was was the European map, with the exception of the Balkans, and otherwise the globe. I mean, you had so many conflicts um, yeah, yeah. that that where the the Soviet Union was involved, where the Americans were involved, or Western countries were involved. So I think as such, it's also almost a cliche to, to say, oh, yeah, the Cold War. That was when we had this ideological rivalry and everything was, you know, the status quo-seeking stuff. That's all correct for for Europe. And I think in that sense, it's for me as a German, it's, it sounds terribly plausible because that's how, you know, I was taught history. You know, this is, you know, then we went and, uh, of course, I lived through the times back then and, and saw the, the, the inner German border. But, I mean, it's such... It wasn't as rosy as, yeah. I mean, they sometimes try to tell us now, I think. But I guess Europe is uh, the source of uh, uh, the source of great wars, the wars that really disrupt normal way of life. And that's why I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine that we are going to live through the second year with this war ongoing. Because, I mean, of course, I guess it's, it's true to say that the more this conflict goes on, 
like the, the the more chances of escalation we have so uh, and escalation can happen in so many different directions because uh, of course this type of escalation is not under anyone's control neither under putin's neither the people in, in washington and of course you have a full scale as people in the west like to say full scale war i'm going with a uh, uh, with this bigger geopolitical context uh, and conflict and context and the context is the west vis-a-vis russia so to speak um and of course or the us versus china or you know this the west versus <laughs> the autocratic rest of the world yeah I like mean, the, depending on what narrative you sort of take into consideration yeah, or yeah. Into. but it's also i wanted to mention that of course from the american perspective they really like this concept of a new new cold war because i mean from their perspective well they won the cold war they're still pretty powerful and they, you know they could win the second cold war of course of course it's i don't think it's uh in they do intentionally think so but of course subconsciously they should think so because they they won the cold war and the cold war was very much more serious conflict because of the ideological uh substance and now there is really no ideological substance there is just like this war as they say against autocrats of the world but they could still muddle through it and they can make it. I mean, in a sense, people in Washington, they do like geopolitical games, so to speak. And of course, for them, I think so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether they really do, but that's what I think. <laughs> um, and from their perspective, of course, the, the narrative of the new Cold War is a, is a good one because, I mean, um, they, can, they, I mean, they think they probably can win the second Cold War and... As such, again, um, the competition between China and and the U.S. is pretty serious for them, but the competition between the U.S. and Russia is not that serious enough. Which, again, as we will be discussing in terms of psychological perspective and from Russian perspective, the whole thing is actually like it. It makes it way much more complicated because you you do have this. Um, power that is really dissatisfied and that is really desperate and in a sense it, it feels uh, that it's being kind of suppressed and pressed like in, in intentionally suppressed um, and which future is in a sense very but opaque. how can we disentangle that? I mean because if you now take again <laughs> sort of it, it's almost a straw man thing yeah. right? Uh, what we have been talking about this sort of western media thing of course it's a little bit more complex, but I mean, what I what I think we both mean is, if you look into a, into a European quality newspaper or into um, public broadcasting stuff like the BBC or or German public broadcasting, you you more or less have a consistent narrative of the current conflict, and you have interpretations or um, arguments like. This is sort of the neo-imperialism of Russia. And um, it has all been with us. It's something that has been prepared. It's, it's a way, how, it's, it's an amalgam of um, how the Russian Orthodox Church also has been integrated into the wider political system of the Kremlin. Um, everything after 2008 has you know, been that the money that was earned by exporting energy has been primarily invested into military equipment and into enlarging the, the military. Um, so, I mean, you can say, well, of course, this is, this is correct or it's partly correct or it's mostly correct, whatever. What I don't, what, what I don't get is that um, when you seem to listen to Russian intellectuals who are still sort of pro-Kremlin, you have this, this sense of um, of that the West, whatever that is, or NATO, or the US, or like all the other countries, mm -hmm. they, they didn't treat Russia correctly. They sort of cheated on Russia. They, um, they, they don't talk to it at the same eye level. So it, a lot of it sounds a bit like, you know, small children in the playground, you know, I mean, trying to negotiate who is sort of the, the top dog who otherwise, you know, that they are sort of respected. Um, and, and, and at the same time, we have this, we have this sort of Western media narrative that, that it's all a pretty much a clear ideological plan by the Russian side. Um, 
and they will, you know, they have to be stopped. And the only way to stop them is by, you know, bringing everything that we have to the table when it comes yeah. to military equipment. And my guess would be it's, I mean, both are not fully off, but I mean, um, it also doesn't mean, I mean, lead to a, lead to a, a picture that as such is, is convincing. So I, I, th I think, of course, there is a, a this, this kind of neo-imperial ideology and it's, it's certainly related to the, to the Kremlin's propaganda. But I mean, what is the driving force? Is, is it just that, you know, if we say, hey, we respect you and I mean, we know that you are a great power and Obama was wrong that he called you a regional power. Is that something that will really change um, policies in the Kremlin? I don't think so. But at the same time, is, is this idea to, hey, we just put more high Mars and other stuff uh, to the Ukrainian side. Will that, I mean, eventually make the Russians say, hey, now we're really outnumbered. We rather withdraw back to the pre-February 24 borders. I think yeah. both sounds not terribly convincing or rather naive to me. Well, I, I can maybe clarify the, uh, the Russian thinking. In, in a sense, I think it's just deeply anti-American and American in anti-American in the sense they don't want the U.S. to be just the sole authority in European security architecture. I mean, specifically security architecture. Because you can go, again, like Russian position is very consistent. It's like actually incredibly... If you if you just go if you just go through Putin's speeches all the way to 2001 in Bundestag, to 2007 Munich Security Conference, to 2015 in in the UN, just you listen to these three speeches and you could see how his narrative developed. I mean, in 2001 he said we should drop this whole division into the West and non-West, and he said like the world has become way much more complicated than that, which is true. I mean, of course the whole West non-West division is false, is is intentionally designed to categorize nations into these uh, convenient baskets. But of course, like, even, you know, we're now in Berlin and we all understand that the world is way much more compl complicated than all those banal cat categories of, like, World War II, or World War, sorry, well, Cold War and World War II in a sense as well. Um, so the Russian narrative is just that they don't want Americans to be the sole authority in European, specifically European security architecture, because they're not really... They don't really consider themselves like a, a world power anymore. Of course, they have uh, certain ambitions, but I don't think they really think about themselves as something that could really challenge American. But why global. do you think that? Uh, when was the point in the Kremlin by Putin by other Russian decision makers that they thought, well, with the Normandy format, we saw that. The only Europeans who are still rather tilting to towards the Russian position, or those who are more accommodating and sort of, I mean, trying to balance between the Russian and the and the American position. This was like France and Germany, right? And um, how come that they eventually thought, well, I mean, uh, we just go all in, because I mean. I think that is something that we also discussed repeatedly, and I, th I still think that's a correct observation, is that um, the, the, U the Ukraine war really led or really forced countries, maybe with the exception of Hungary to a certain extent, to really say, you know, we're either with the Russians or we are with, uh, with the US or US and Ukraine. Um, and I mean, it, it's, it's a bit like this, George W. Bush thing, when he in the State of the Union said, you know, the axis of evil and, or, and, yeah. and also you're, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. I mean, this kind of black and white thing, I mean, this is now really something obvious. And you, you, see, you see that with every newspaper article that appears on either Emmanuel Macron or Olaf Scholz talking to Putin on the phone and what is then made up what the content of this conversation was about. Oh, the war won't end soon. Well, okay. Terrible, but I mean, that's also not terribly surprising. Yeah. But I mean, other than that, I mean, I, 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 my guess is that the Americans are trying to also, I mean, certainly support the, the Germans and the French to, you know, keep that channel of communication open. But other than that, I mean, I think when it comes to finding, finding yeah. some kind of no one, no. agreement, I mean, it seems to be that they are all now 
really in this in this kind of bifurcated world we have the west against but it's Russia, uh, it's also if you think about american perspective no one gives up like this world dominance like no no one no one I would say no one would want to say, you know, I, I have all the power in the system and now I give up this power. I mean, of course, maybe some people could argue that happened with uh, Brits and Americans in, in 20th century. But of course, for, for, from perspective of uh, Brits, uh, Americans were almost identical to, to Great Britain and they, and they reserved a lot of power for Great Britain, which is still a powerful nation despite its size and the size of its econ economy and stuff like this. I mean, of course, it's, it's also an interesting question, yeah, how, when, when, when did in Kremlin they decide to go all in? And I thought about it quite a, quite a while. I think actually the whole like, position, Russian position, structural, you can say structural position pre-war was actually weak. It, it, like Russia didn't go anywhere, to be honest, because it was intentionally put by Western powers into the sanctioned into the sanction status quo, um, there was no hope to resolve Ukrainian conflict. And again, probably in 20 years, as Putin said, Ukraine would join NATO. So what are we going to do about this? Like in the sense, like, and of course, the economy, Russian economy didn't perform great either. So of course, there was like this moment when, I mean, and I guess I, I'll also bring uh, Russian domestic perspective in, into this picture because uh, for Putin, it's important to, to, to preserve whatever he created during this 20 period of time. And what he created is like this idea of sovereign, independent nation. Maybe it's not that great economically, but at least it, it's sovereign. It has a right to decide its own kind of historical path. And um, its path is basically confrontational with the West. It, it challenges, I mean, I think it challenges American authority. It doesn't challenge the West itself. I think it's still willing to cooperate with Germany or France. But, the but challenges... it has done that in other parts, right? I mean, yeah. you, you could see that in Libya, you could see it in Syria, and yeah. you can see it in, in, in Mali or in other countries in Africa. I mean, you could, yeah. you could I mean, I guess people in, in, in Washington will say, well, I mean, we all saw that. Um, but why the heck did they decide then to invade Ukraine? I mean, I, it, it already was a pain in the ass for us. In Syria, in Libya, in in other parts in the Middle East, in Africa, but I mean, why why are they now? I mean, even opening up a new front. I think I have I, I, can, I can give you two answers. Like, and one would be like a structural one because the war changes all dispositions and positions in the game. Like suddenly, something big happened, something that would go into history, and this creates some window of opportunity actually for Russia because future is really uncertain. Because again, pre-war scenario for Russia is not really the great one. Okay, you think about like the European Union would grow economically, the US would grow economically, China would grow economically, Russia wouldn't probably grow economically pre-world war, I mean pre-war in Ukraine. I mean, it's, it, it probably wouldn't grow now either, but at least it still has, it retained this kind of like sovereignty an authority. Um, this is, I guess, like from structural perspective, like it, its position in the system wasn't that great, and at least um, uh, like the war opens this new chapter in history, and who knows where it leads us. I guess the second point I, I want to make it would be if you think about Putin as a, as an artist, actually, <laughs> I know it's hard like, to imagine. <laughs> no, I think he he's a great artist because if you think about artist again, connecting to the first point who who's like whose canvas is is world history and of course like what what artist wants is attention and if you think about like he again he opened this new chapter in history which is a pretty big statement because whoever like people would like whoever people will remember in 100 200 300 even 1000 years probably would be putin from this period of time uh, like you know it's it's a, it's a pretty big statement to make in a sense of course it's a little bit suicidal it's a very risky but i mean everyone is talking about putin putin is still on the all the headlines this is like again what when you go through like economist a pale of your economist journal so to speak you could see like you know no one thought about russia in 2021 a little bit maybe but suddenly you know exploded everyone talks about russia and this is also of course deeply psychological in in, in psyche of russian people that russian people do enjoy like this 
attention. I mean, in a sense, they do want to be Americans. Like they do want the, like to to have certain, yeah, I would say just attention. So people people talking about you, people discussing you, and you you might think it 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 was very important for Russians to create a new type of like new type of a country in 20th century. It was important for them to launch people in space. All those things, of course, it's all about uh, attention and, in a sense, just respect. Uh, just like it's something like back to respect. Yeah, <laughs> but also, I, I, and also, the third point, it's of course like just Russian domestic maybe politics because Putin, Putin wants to save whatever he created during this twenty period of time, and the way he could ensure it is just creating this conflict because, like, Russia would never. I mean, it, it, like now, basically. Whoever comes into power after Putin, uh, he will have to deal with this conflict on Putin's terms because there is no way back. And of course, from Russian perspective, there is also a deep, deeply seated, um, I would say maybe um, deeply seated confrontation with the Ukrainians. Uh, so there is no way you can come back. There is, of course, there is no way that whoever comes in Kremlin, uh, whoever comes in Kremlin after Putin, his a successor, he will cede territory to Ukrainians, and he will strike a, a peace deal with the, with with the with the U.S., for example. So there is this type of like conservation of the of the Russian political system, and um, like in a way, it's 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 a way to ensure that the country will go into the same direction that he chose, so to speak. So I I, I would I would think those I guess like summary of over this. Year of observation, so to speak. Uh, so, what do you uh, do? You think about it? <laughs> in, in a sense, does it sound appealing? <laughs> it certainly doesn't sound appealing. Whether it sounds convincing <laughs> or plausible is a different story. <laughs> I, I mean, we've had this phenomenon of the you know Kremnologists, or how have you pronounced them, right? Um, in the 1980s, so when that was, or 70s, when it was unclear what is actually happening in in Moscow, who's calling the shots, I mean, how are decisions being taken and prepared and, and what yeah. have you. And I think um, in that sense, uh, maybe less so Washington, but I mean, still Moscow, I think, for the respective other side, is still something like a black box. I think that as such, the understanding of um, of Washington, what Americans want, is most likely a little bit better in Moscow or in the Kremlin than the other way around. But as as such, I, I still think that both sides don't really understand what the or the other side wants, and and therefore also presents or interprets, analyzes the conflict to the domestic audience on on their own terms or like there is something like a of course a russian narrative of the entire thing that is being presented to the uh, russian population and there is something similar um how the american um government is presenting the ukraine war to the american public um and that is yeah i think something that is um pretty much based on the interpretation of the conflict by the Americans and less so on an attempt to, oh, what is it that the Russians um, really want? Um, something that I think scares me or something that I, I, I'm i afraid that might happen and that, that might really escalate the conflict in a way that we haven't expected is, is really the, the, the different options by the Russian side to... Um, escalate the conflict not on the territory of Ukraine, but I mean, if you think about what they could potentially do in in um, the Caucasus, or or rather in in maybe Georgia or Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, of course that could also backfire. Um, I mean, there there is still something where where Russians could escalate um, the situation there, and they could also. I think maybe escalate the conflict with regard to Kazakhstan and not least with regard to Moldova. I mean, yeah. I, I found it interesting to say that based just on the media reports I read, whether they are good, I don't know. Um, but if really the Moldovan um, intelligence, which sounds maybe awkward for some people, right? Because they, they always look down upon Moldova as this kind of strange 
uh, state in in Europe. But I mean, if if that's if if the Kremlin or if Russia is opening up a second front there, I think this will really um, also mean that this war or conflict between uh, the West and Russia will will be one of many many years. And um, um, yeah, I I think that where Western observers really have underestimated um, the Russian side is that apparently neither is the population in Russia revolting against uh, the Kremlin policies to the extent that some observers thought they might, uh, nor is, um, is the Russian state actually uh, weakening or collapsing as easily as, as some observers wanted to or, or or for it. So I, 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 as such, I think they, even if they, on average, are in a weaker position, I think that the kind of, not momentum, but I mean the, the, the kind of possibility to freeze up some resources or really to go to the very core of, of the survival of the state by, with, for instance, the mobilization decision is something where I think we see differences um, of Russia um, versus other countries. Um, I mean, if you just see that, they can mobilize 300,000, maybe even a million people. I mean, it's not something that, I mean, you could do in the same proportions in Germany, for instance. The same goes for the military equipment. So, um, I, I mean, also the, the reports I read are very contradictory, but because at, this, at the same time, it's being said that um, Russians are running out of ammunition. The same goes for the Ukrainian side. Then um, I read something like that uh, the entire uh, approval of HIMARS ammunition that is sort of being promised to Ukraine um, is something that they, I mean, the Ukrainians have actually used in, I think, five to six months. But now it takes something like five, four years of full production to replenish them. Yeah. As I mean, I, I think as, as such, the, the very strange situation, and there I really miss kind of military expertise or a, a talk or, or information by, by a military expert, is um, there really seems to be a breaking point now that with regard to the so-called sophisticated weaponry, um, both sides actually seem to be weakening or running out of stock and of course that that will be something if it's just to you know infantry and some tanks and some rifles and machine guns and um, how will this conflict actually turn out because apparently this precision guided missiles from the west and from russia no longer seem to be in stock to a large extent and they cannot be produced as quickly that it i mean the, the war as such can continue as it was being fought this year. So um, I, I'm not sure whether I should see that as a positive sign, <clears throat> so that, oh, this makes negotiations more likely at an end of the conflict, or is it just suggesting, oh, my God, this conflict is getting even worse, and even more people are killed? It's something I cannot really answer, because I, I lack the necessary expertise and insights. But, I mean, apparently both sides or but both also, options seem to be on the table. Like Returning back to our discussion about media, it may be actually just wishful thinking because I also read people like some military analysts even in America, they're saying it's, I mean, Russia has been, like Russia and Soviet Union especially, uh, has been preparing for a larger Cold War style conflict with the West. So in terms of stock, they, they have stocks in a sense. I mean, it's also maybe wishful thinking that they try to say, you know, just let's let's support Ukraine. I mean, again, it comes to this uh, narrative. Let's uh, can increase our uh, support of Ukrainian army, and then Ukraine wins, and then you know we'll go home. But in a sense, uh, I think Russia is ready for very protracted, longer conflict. And of course, as you said, like the chances of escalation are very high, and it's also they, they could escalate in politics. They could escalate. Um, like by attacking just other NATO member, because I mean, they could say, well, if they, you know, like NATO is the part of the conflict. And I mean, of course, NATO is already part of the conflict, so to speak. That's, uh, that makes the, the whole conflict very, of course, dangerous and um, prone to escalation. 
Um, okay. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a... <laughs> um. It doesn't sound like the rosy outlook for 2023, <laughs> you mean? But yeah, maybe yeah. that's a, something that we have to continue to discuss in early 2023 and maybe some political developments until then are, you know, making us come to a more optimistic assessment but i mean um you're right i mean we have moldova we have the baltics we have um maybe less so the balkans where there was all, always this yeah, yeah. debate about the role of serbia for instance um but but as such i think that uh, this this idea that yeah. it will suffice to just send more weapons and i mean there is no way that Uh, short of the nuclear option that the Russians have to escalate, I think that's that was also again wishful yeah. thinking in the West. So I mean, we, we, I mean, yeah. one has to see um, what uh, what can be done. Yeah. But I think um, otherwise yeah, it's a pretty it's, grim. Um, it's, it's unfortunately still a grim picture. But I mean, um, I still remain an optimist in in a way. So I, I hope we'll will be able to discuss better news yes. next year. And it's good that you are uncertain because I'm uncertain as well. <laughs> so at least, at least, I guess like uncertainty gives you way much more room for exploration and, and optimism. Opti <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure about optimism, but critical thinking definitely. And um, I guess the. We are, we are living through history now, in the sense if you think about Putin as an artist who who like draws on the on the history as a canvas, like you know people people will write about him quite a lot of books even in two hundred years. Well, people all, <laughs> always wrote about lunatics, right? So that's right. And I mean, there, yeah. there were there were others as well. <laughs> I mean, yes. So let's see how it unfolds. So thank you very much, and look forward to our conversations in twenty twenty three.